It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Thursday morning, the 13th of January. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. Gardaí and Tullamore are investigating a fatal assault which took place on a young woman yesterday afternoon. 22-year-old Ashling Murphy was attacked at around 4 o'clock when she was out for a jog after work. Ashling was a primary school teacher, a musician who comes from a well-known musical family in Tullamore. A man in his 40s is under arrest and a murder investigation is underway. Ger Scully is the editor of uh, the local newspaper there, the Tullamore Tribune, and on the line with us. Good morning to Ger. Thanks uh, for joining us on the programme this morning. I'm sure there's a, a sense of disbelief, shock uh, and sadness at what was, by all accounts, a random attack on Ashling yesterday. Uh, good morning, Michael. Yes, um, people are absolutely, uh, I think numb here is probably the word, just can't believe that such a thing could have happened because um, the canal line where the incident took place is extremely popular in Tullamore, especially since uh, the COVID uh, pandemic started. And there's literally hundreds of people who use it every day. So people are stunned that such an attack of such a horrific nature and such of a random nature it appears could take place in broad daylight four o'clock it was still uh, daylight and there was many people using the canal at that time uh, a beautiful place to walk in a, a beautiful town and many people around and it's believed uh, that some people witnessed uh, the attack on Ashling. Yeah, absolutely. I actually lived beside the canal myself and um, I was there yesterday at lunchtime and the amount of people who were walking at that stage um, is unreal. People walked during their lunch break and also people people use it all day and certainly a lot of school teachers after work when they finish at three o'clock or whatever would use the canal uh, for exercise and that's what Ashling was doing and apparently she had done the same thing the day before and uh, there's a uh, I suppose it's poignant in a way. There's a, a walkway at, from in Tullamore along the canal, both sides of the canal. It's 4.5k in length and it's called Fiona's Way. And that's where the incident took place. Fiona's Way is named in honour of Fiona Pender, the um, t- 26-year-old uh, woman who went missing in Tullamore in 1996 and has never been found. 
So um, almost ironic, isn't it? Yeah, very, very ironic, very ironic. And uh, but there was a lot of people using uh, the canal, and I understand that uh, two women who were also out walking came on the attack taking place, and the attacker fled. Right, they contacted the guardy, and they were on the scene almost immediately, and paramedics. And they were able to give a, a description of the attacker to the guardy. Yes, they were, and they arrested him shortly later, and uh, he is known uh, to the Gardaí, for instance, in the past. I don't know of his previous convictions, but certainly he is known to the Gardaí for suspected violent incidents. And indeed, uh, his photo was circulating on social media last night, and many people would recognise him from out and about in town. He works in a local business, so... Okay. Uh, he wasn't known to Ashling, or Ashling wouldn't have known this man? No, uh, no mm. it, it seems that uh, not, not at all. Ashling was a young woman, uh, 22 or 23. She was from a family outside the town on the Blue Ball on the Kilcormack side of town. And um, she taught, she only graduated recently, I understand. She taught at Doro National School, which is on the other side of town near the M6 uh, motorway. She taught first class there. And um, she was also a well-known local musician from a well-known uh, musical family, ballads and traditional music. She took part in the last Tullamore Trad Fest. And before Christmas, there was a This Is Christmas event organised in Tullamore in O'Connor Square, the main square here. And she ha- had her students singing in a choir. So she she was extremely well-known, not just locally, but across the Midlands and maybe the entire country in traditional music circles. Yeah, music in her, her blood, quite literally, and her, her family known far and wide, uh, and I'm sure there'll be a, a lot of sorrow and grief uh, across uh, the country at the news uh, of Ashleen's death. But under the circumstances, it, it really it is very hard uh, for people to take it in. Uh, what, what have people been saying locally? Um, I think, uh, as I said at the start there, Michael, it's uh, a sense of numbness. I suppose uh, last night it... Um, it, it kind of it was a drip feed on us. There was uh, stories circulating on social media and just from talking to people that they, there had been a serious assault on the canal line. Then, I, as I said, I live near the canal line myself. Mm. I was going into a Zoom meeting last night and I went up to the local shop first. I noticed that this entrance to Fiona's Way, the guardie had sealed it off and there was a guard car there. I was talking to a local person and he said there was an assault had taken place down the canal line just about a kilometre from the town centre. Um, that um, it was on social media said that a, a woman had been killed or mm. murdered and but he didn't think that he thought it was a serious assault but then um, just before I went into my Zoom meeting at 8 o'clock uh, word came through that it was actually uh, a murder Okay, it's uh, it really is a, a dreadful story and not the type of story you'd expect to hear from a provincial town such as Tullamore. A very uh, unusual type of a, a event uh, for such serious violence uh, and uh, indeed a murder like uh, this uh, to take in and uh, a dreadful time for the family who now have to make preparations uh, for... Uh, Absolutely, and for our students as well. Michael. Well, I was just going to go to Duro National School, School uh, because she was so young. Uh, she she must have really just qualified uh, from college. Was that her first year teaching? I, I think so. No, yeah. I, again, I cannot mm. be sure of that, of that myself. But um, but a I lot of these the children will be waking up to this news uh, this morning. Of course, yeah. and I think mm. the school contacted parents last night and asked the parents to uh, relay the news to the students themselves because they were best placed to do that. But the school is opening, and they will have counsellors in today for people who wish to avail of it. So, and I, I suppose here locally as well, the, I was just talking to some people this morning on the way into work and um, they, 
people who use the canal line because it's so popular. It's a Grand Canal Greenway, which you hear in the, in the news. So often, Offaly County Council and the government who invested huge money in it. Um, just last year, they opened a new car park at Digby Bridge, just near where the uh, uh, incident took place. And huge numbers of people were using it. And people of all ages and all fitness levels use, use the canal line. And people I was, t- I was talking to this morning who use it said they, they won't do it again. Mm. And to say this, uh, women and to say some of their female friends are now afraid to go out cycling on their own or walking on their own if it can happen in such an area where there's so many people in broad daylight it could happen anywhere. Well that really is the bigger question isn't it? Uh, I mean this is a terrible terrible tragedy for such a, a young person to lose their lives uh, in an unprovoked uh, attack in a random attack like that in broad daylight uh, in a, an area that is well populated a lot of people are around at that time of uh, the day as you say and that question will be asked by Probably every uh, woman in uh, the country now, is it safe to walk the streets? Yeah, no, absolutely. I think the, um, the Minister for Justice tweeted that last night as the other, as the leader of Sinn Féin and uh, Deputy Justice of Madigan as well, that the broader implications of all this for Irish society, that um, is for anywhere safe for women in particular to uh, walk and to exercise. Okay, well, it is a murder investigation, uh, the Gardaí. Uh, we'll deal with that, uh, obviously, and we'll be looking for information uh, from uh, people locally. In, in the meantime, the community will come together uh, and somehow try to come to terms with what is impossible to take in uh, this morning in Tullamore. Ger, thank you indeed uh, for joining yeah, us. Thank you, Michael. Thank you very much indeed. Okay. Uh, Ger Scully is uh, the editor of uh, the Tullamore Tribune. And uh, as you've been hearing, that incident, that terrible, terrible murder happened at four o'clock yesterday afternoon and uh, the news had been circulating uh, across uh, the evening on social media and uh, this is how people in Tullamore and that general region were waking up to that news this morning. Good morning, I'm Joe Caulfield. There's a feeling of shock and disbelief in Tullamore this morning after a woman was killed while jogging in the town. Ashley Murphy, aged in her early 20s and a teacher at Durrow National School on the outskirts of the town, was attacked near Boland's Lock and Cappen Kerr at about four o'clock yesterday afternoon. Two people who were walking in the area attempted to disturb an attack. A man in his 40s remains in guard of custody this morning. Cahirlock of Offaly County Council, Declan Harvey, who lives in the town, says the incident has raised concerns over the safety of those walking, jogging or cycling along the popular Grand Canal Way. These things don't happen in Tullamore. The Grand Canal, the walkway, the greenway down there, during the pandemic, it kept us all sane because hundreds of people use it. It was a safe place. I don't know how people are going to feel about it now. I just, I'm shocked, totally shocked, as, as a local representative and living in the area, I'm totally shocked. The victim's body has been removed from the scene, which remains sealed off this morning. This man lives yards from where the attack happened. What do you say about it? You know, it's just shocking, like, you know, it's just... You know, it's just a thought that it's just happened there on your doorstep. It's, you know, we were all thinking that the area was safe and, you know, it's just proof that it can happen anywhere. Dreadful news uh, from Midlands Radio 3 from Tullamore this morning and uh, that uh, investigation uh, undoubtedly uh, will be the main focus of uh, the bulletins uh, today and we'll be keeping you up to speed throughout uh, the morning here this morning. Now to other issues uh, and uh, indeed uh, the ongoing pandemic emergency uh, that has emanated from coronavirus and uh, the latest strain of it which is Omicron and how uh, there is some sense uh, that 
that uh, we're going through a mild phase of coronavirus. The World Health Organization met yesterday and they were asked uh, about Omicron and if this is a mild variant. Let's be clear. While Omicron causes less severe disease than Delta, it remains a dangerous virus, particularly for those who are unvaccinated. Almost 50,000 deaths a week is 50,000 deaths too many. Learning to live with this virus does not mean we can or should accept this number of deaths. We must not allow this virus a free ride or wave the white flag, especially when so many people around the world remain unvaccinated. That's Dr. Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus, who is uh, the Director General of uh, the World Health Organization. Uh, as I say, the WHO held a meeting in its headquarters in Geneva yesterday. And of course, Omicron was top of uh, the agenda. While Omicron may be less severe as an individual virus infection in an individual, that this does not mean this is a mild disease. And... Uh, There are many, many people uh, around the world as we speak in hospital, in ICUs, on ventilators, uh, uh, gasping for their breath on oxygen, uh, who would uh, obviously uh, be very clear that this is not uh, a mild disease. Um, It is a vaccine-preventable disease. Uh, It is a disease that can be prevented by taking... Uh, to a great extent by taking uh, strong personal precautions to avoid infection, getting vaccinated, and there are things we can do about it. And I think um, it's very, very important that we remember that it's still in our hands. Uh, Maria says this a lot. The Director General says this a lot. There's much we can do, and this is not the time to give up. This is not the time to give in. This is not the time uh, to declare... Uh, that this is a a welcome uh, virus. Uh, No virus is welcome that kills people. Um, And especially when that's, to a great extent, that mortality and that suffering is preventable through the uh, appropriate use of vaccinations. That's the Irish-born executive uh, director of the World Health Organization, Dr. Mike Ryan. Uh, Of course, Omicron uh, is uh, one of uh, these issues uh, that is confusing people because there's a lot more of it, but there seems to be uh, a lot less severe illness. And uh, the questions from journalists to these health experts at at WHO did centre on this latest variant of COVID. What we definitely see with this variant is that... Uh, it transmits incredibly efficiently between people. And you've seen that in the epidemic curve that we published last night uh, online. Um, And the director general commented today, uh, more than 15 million cases reported in a seven-day period. Um, We had to change the scale of the epidemic curve that we published last night because it's it's such an astounding number. Um, And certainly, if we allow this virus to continue to spread as it is, um, we will see high, higher numbers of cases in the coming weeks. I think the point um, of us sitting up here and speaking every day uh, and doing these press conferences, issuing guidance, issuing strategies, is that we have tools at hand that can prevent something that's predicted in a model from actually happening. We said this in the beginning of this pandemic. There were a lot of models that came out that gave very scary predictions about what would happen if we didn't act if we didn't take this as seriously as it needed to be taken, we're in that situation again. There is no inevitability about this virus and how it circulates. 
we have control, some measure of control in terms of limiting its spread with tools that we have access to, masks, distancing, ventilation, avoiding crowds, um, knowing what our risk is every day and taking measures to lower that risk. At the present time, we're not able to prevent all infections, but we can limit the spread and we can reduce the sheer number of cases that are occurring right now. We can also reduce the severity of COVID-19 with vaccination, with earlier clinical care, uh, with access to diagnosis to get patients into the clinical care pathway so that they can receive earlier clinical care. So I think we need to look at these models um, as ways to help us plan, uh, as ways to look at scenarios going forward. And we as WHO are looking at a number of different models, a number of different future scenarios in terms of case predictions, in terms of hospitalizations and deaths, also looking at potential scenarios of, of how much further this virus will evolve because the virus is spreading and it's continuing to evolve. But these models are just that. They are tools that help us plan and take direction and take action. So what we are asking is everyone to help us reduce the spread because the sheer volume of cases is putting a burden on healthcare systems. Because even though Omicron uh, is less severe than Delta, it still is putting people in hospital. It is still putting people into ICU and needing advanced clinical care. It is still killing people. And so the more people that end up in hospital and fill up those beds from COVID-19, they take beds away from other emergencies that need to be cared for as well. Right. That's Dr. Maria van Kerkhoff uh, from uh, the World Health Organization. And we will be talking uh, a little bit later on in uh, the programme today about how the rules have changed and if you've uh, been a close contact and don't have symptoms, if you're boosted, you can go back uh, to work uh, and what that means. Because I'm not sure that what we heard there from those experts, and they're the people who would know, it seems, uh, that it would instill any confidence in you that this is going to get any better. It would seem as though it's going to get a whole lot worse because there's going to be a whole lot more disease. And if some people are getting very sick or needing hospital care or succumbing to the disease, uh, I think that uh, we're probably going to see more of that. As I say, we're going to be talking about that a little bit later on in the programme. And as usual, we'd love your thoughts on it. People already sharing their thoughts with us uh, this morning about uh, this terrible news that we're waking up to today about uh, the murder of a young 22-year-old woman in broad daylight in a provincial Irish town out for a jog after work where uh, she had been teaching first-class students in Duro National School. A random attack for absolutely no reason, it seems. And uh, today, uh, the family of Ashling Murphy will be planning her burial. Uh, somebody says it's a shocking attack on that girl in Tullamore. Bring back the death penalty. A life for a life, says our caller. PJ then texting says, if a Garda is murdered, they get 40 years. It should be the same for everyone, for all murderers. Bring in laws to suit the crime, getting out our after 12 years or 15 years is just a joke, PJ says. Give all murders the same sentence. 40 years, no appeal. 
uh, Deirdre, or sorry, it's uh, Tom uh, who's in touch with us. Tom says women should mind themselves. Uh, they walk around with earphones. I was walking around the spire of Lloyd two years ago and Tom says this was seven o'clock in the morning and he noticed that there was a big fellow in the hedge with the eyes hanging out of his head. Be careful out there, says Tom. Thank you indeed to everybody who's been in touch with us today so far. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, the government uh, took uh, the first step, at least uh, yesterday, towards policing uh, the internet. The Online Safety and Media Regulation Bill was launched uh, by the Minister for the Media, Catherine Martin. The Commission will have robust powers of enforcement and sanction, including financial sanctions of up to 20 million or 10, 10% of the turnover. In terms of online safety, the goal of the Online Safety Commissioner will be to minimise the availability of defined categories of harmful online content through binding online safety codes, including certain criminal content, serious cyberbullying content and other damaging material. The Commissioner will have specific regards to the effects of such content on children when defining and enforcing the online safety codes. The bill that has been published today addresses recommendations in relation to better defining harmful online content, reporting requirements for online services, a bigger role for the Media Commission in Education, and the independence and resourcing of the Commission. There are other recommendations, including those regarding the provision of an individual complaints mechanism for harmful online content that require further consideration, and which I intend to address through potential amendments to the bill at committee stage. I am currently in the process of establishing an expert group to report to me within 90 days with recommendations for how best to address the matter of individual complaints. And I will announce the membership of that group next week. This bill and the establishment of a fully resourced online safety commissioner's office also go towards fulfilling a key program for government commitment made by this coalition government. In line with that pledge, online platforms will have to, in future, set out the steps they will take to keep their users safe online. There will be new online safety codes to combat damaging materials such as cyberbullying, services promoting eating disorders, self-harm or suicide, and also mechanisms for further categories of harmful content to be added following consultation with the Oireachtas. Right, uh, that's uh, Minister Catherine Martin uh, setting out uh, some of the steps that will be taken shortly and some uh, that uh, the Minister hopes will be taken soon. But one of uh, the things uh, that will happen in the coming weeks is the appointment of an online safety commissioner. The Children's Rights Alliance puts this very well, saying it's going to be very difficult to enforce any changes in behaviour in the wild west of the online world without appointing a sheriff. That sheriff is uh, the Online Safety Commissioner. Let's talk to Julia Hearn, who's uh, the Legal and Policy Manager with the Children's Rights Alliance. Good morning, Julia, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us here on uh, the programme this morning. In political speaker, I suppose you could say uh, a lot done, a lot more to do. Good morning, Michael. Indeed, I think you can hear from what Minister Martin just said there that you played. Um, the government did approve the bill, which is to be welcomed. It is you know, it is an opportunity for government to really take a firm stand against big tech and put an end to the role that they have had big tech in self-regulating themselves over the past number of years. But really what we need to see, I suppose, is that 
you know, first of all, that they deliver on their commitment to provide an online safety commissioner. We haven't seen the detail of the bill yet, but we need to make sure that that person has real teeth and that they have real powers. And it is really positive to hear that the minister has an intention to seek approval to recruit the officer without delay. So that is really positive. But and I suppose fi- there is fi- more fines, to do. fines of up to twenty million euros are, are pretty significant. They are indeed, and I suppose there are a number of things to be welcomed within the bill, but there are some aspects of the bill that could that you know could be looked at in terms of strengthening it. For example, um, one of the big things that we see missing in the bill is a way in which individuals, particularly children and young people, can contact the commissioner themselves with an individual complaint. Mm. We hear from our members all the time stories about families who, you know, children might have experienced cyberbullying or harm online. They've gone to the platform and the platform has said, sorry, there's nothing we can do. And really what we need to see is that there's somewhere for these families to go, someone they can go to where they can have someone else take action on these issues and provide a real result for families. And that is what we want to see come into the bill at later stages. We were really heartened to hear that the Minister has the has going, is, is going to appoint an expert group mm. to look at the issue of individual complaints. But I suppose what is really key is that the voices and experiences of children and young people who we've heard time and time again are experiencing real harms online are heard during this process. Okay. And the need for someone is really recognised. I, I think the Minister would find it easier, or a, a lot easier at least, uh, to establish a mechanism for individual complaints if it was for Irish people, the population of Ireland, five million of us. Uh, The problem seems to be that it might uh, actually be necessary to uh, allow that for everybody in Europe, which would be a population of 400 million people. Yeah, and I suppose, I mean, I mean, I suppose we need to think really, we need to think big on this. I think, you know, just because something is difficult to do doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. Just because it is going to cover a large population or is big is a big ask doesn't mean that the children and young people of Ireland who are experiencing harms should be without somewhere to go. Mm. I mean, as it stands, if a media platform says, sorry, no, that content doesn't violate the guidelines we have drawn up ourselves, it stays online for a number of years and causes untold harm to children and young people. We've heard stories from our members of young people who've had to move school. Mm. Um, I mean, that is huge. That is a huge impact on a child's life. But if you, set, really up a, but if you set up an office uh, that was manned by the population of Ireland, if you had 500 people working uh, in uh, the Commissioner's office, uh, would that be enough to police uh, an internet uh, that's used by 400 million people? Yeah, I mean, and I fully take that. I think what we need to think about is if it is going to have to police 400 million people, we need to potentially seek investment from your, at a European level to fund this office so that it can provide that protection for children and young people and indeed adults throughout Europe. I think, you know, this the online world for far too long has been left unregulated. And really what we need to do is we need to move with the times. We need to make sure that we're staying up to date with what is happening. And we need to make sure there's a proper remedy for people. And one way to do this is an individual complaints mechanism and you know if the issue is funds maybe it's time to think a bit bigger and start seeking funds at a European level to man this. Mm. Just because something is difficult doesn't mean we shouldn't we shouldn't look at doing it. Yeah well that's it. Um, you won't get anywhere if you don't have an ambition but uh, it would be very ambitious to try and police uh, something on that scale. Uh, the Wild West uh, as you described it in your press release uh, but if individuals can't make complaints who can make complaints uh, because the Commissioner will be able to investigate complaints, uh, won't they? And uh, there could be these fines of up to 20 million euro. 
Yeah, now we have yet to see the actual detail of the bill, um, but from what we have heard so far, um, it would appear that there is what's called a super complaint, where designated organisations, and again, we don't have the details on who is who will be a designated organisation, but designated organisations can report systematic trends. So if they see a trend over a number of cases, they can report that to the commissioner. Um, or... It would appear, and again, we don't know the detail, but from what we've heard from Minister Martin yesterday, it would appear that the Commissioner might be able to take what they call an own volition type of investigation. But again, we have to wait and see the details, see if there is real teeth in that and how the, how that can be triggered. But it would appear that where that there is some sort of a mechanism there. But really, I suppose what we're concerned about is those individual children and young people who won't have anywhere to go. Hmm. Okay, Dan, I take it that would mean uh, that the Commissioner uh, could be watching uh, events unfold, such as a whistleblower say that uh, there is a social media company that has algorithms in place that directs people towards sites that uh, encourage uh, anorexia or suicidation and that sort of thing. Yeah, and again, without the detail, it is difficult to fully comment Mm -hmm. on it, but that is what we would hope that role would do, and we know that that is a real problem that is happening at the moment. I mean, we've heard the recent whistleblowers from from one platform in particular coming out talking about the algorithms that, that that are adopted, and I suppose really what we need to see is that this is the first step in really coming to terms with how we can regulate the online world. We know children and young people are calling out for regulation. We have heard all their stories about how difficult it is online, what they're seeing, how mm. things are pushed on them, and we need to make sure that really government starts to really tackle this issue to make sure that we react to harms online in the same way we would as if it was harms in the street. Yeah. Mm. Well, I mean, it's a very complicated area uh, because it can be very nuanced, can't it? And some of uh, this can be very subtle. Uh, and uh, I take it that a lot of time will be spent on deciding what is a valid complaint. Uh, I mean, there are very obvious complaints that would be valid and may warrant fines of up to 20 20 billion euro or whatever the case may be. Uh, But if you were to take individual complaints, I mean, what would that mean? Uh, Would you have people calling up and say, he called me ugly or she said I was fat or whatever? Well, what we would see and what we would like to see is that the as in as we as far as we're aware, and again, without seeing the detail of what is of the bill, um, that they'd be required to have codes of conduct. So the Online Safety Commissioner would set codes of conduct for the online platforms. And these codes of conduct would be the issues that, that people could complain about and that, that, that they'd be regulated on the online platforms. And I suppose what we would like to see is the same thing operate, that operates for other issues. Mm. So what the person would be required to do is first complain to the platform. And then it's only if they were unsatisfied or didn't get a response that they could then go and complain to the online safety commissioner and that they would have, I suppose, you know, a way of, first of all, checking that it comes within their remit, Mm. set out in both the legislation and the codes that they hopefully will be required to develop. And then if it falls within that, then it it gets investigated. So there's that kind of a filter Mm. mechanism there. So if I said something insulting about you, that you could go to whichever Facebook or Twitter or TikTok or whatever it is, whatever social, and say... Um, Michael Reid's saying things about me they're not true I want them taken down mm-hmm. if they don't take them down then you could go to the online commissioner Exactly and, right, they, and yeah. they'd filter mm. it even before investigation that's what, that's what we would like to see that is a mm. similar approach that is, that is applied in Australia and Australia were leaders on this they have an online safety commissioner with an individual complaints mechanism mm. and coming back to that issue of volume that you raised earlier their individual complaints mechanism did not result in the office being overrun, which was very interesting. That the fact that it was there alone made the social media companies 
sit up and take more action mm. so that children and young people could get their results at the social media company first without having to go to the individual complaints yeah. mechanism. So yeah. kind of like a carrot and stick approach. And, and, and if we take the example I gave there a moment ago, if I said something about you and it goes, you go to whoever, they go, they don't take it down, you go to the commissioner, then uh, the commissioner would go to whichever social media company it is uh, and they'd be in trouble. But what about me? Would there be any sanction for me? So I suppose we we wouldn't we don't know if this is going to be taken up by yeah. the government and if they do if they decide to do that I mean if if content is illegal so if it violates a law that's already there like say defamation yeah. then that's a different story um, but really I suppose we we know the children and young people are more concerned and people in general about getting the material taken down rather than seeing a sanction they just want it gone so that mm. they can get on and live their life absolutely the but, but there's head. less ri- there's less risk of it going up in the first place if people are afraid mm-hmm. to put it up I suppose that's the carrot and stick part of it, isn't it? Yeah, and I suppose what we're what we're more concerned about, I suppose, is regulating big tech and how they respond to these issues, yeah. um, and making sure that they are taking action to make the internet a safer place, and that they are really focusing on policing and manning mm. their sites in a way that makes them safer, particularly for children, and young people, but for all citizens. Yeah. Well, that makes a lot of sense. It's your company. You make an awful lot of money. You make billions out of it. So run it properly and run it with some sense of decency. Exactly. And we know that, you know, that that tech companies do have things in place, but really we need to make sure that they're working for the individuals who are on their sites. I mean, we know that there's a large number of children and young people online and that it can be a great thing for them, but also it's a really, really difficult place for them at times. We need to make sure that they're safe in the same way that they are if they're walking down the street. Okay, Julie, thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. Thank you very much. Julia Hearn, who is the Legal and Policy Manager with the Children's Rights Alliance. Michael Reed on LMFM. Uh, there's been a lot of uh, complaints from uh, Drum Conrad uh, about people uh, who have had uh, their phone or their internet disturbed uh, because uh, somebody has been robbing copper cables. Uh, apparently uh, it's something that's happening frequently across Monaghan, Loud and Mead that's of concern to Fianna Fáil. The party's spokesperson on justice in the Shannon is Robbie Gatter. Senator Gallagher, good morning to you and thank you indeed for joining us. Uh, this is becoming a widespread trend as such. Yeah, good morning, Michael, and, and thank me for having you on your programme. Yes, unfortunately, uh, if the instance of this activity is on the increase, Michael, and as you outlined there, um, Drum Congrat, the night before last, I understand um, a section of wire was taken down there. I understand just outside Monhound Town last night, um, there was a number of areas in the Castle Sheen area uh, just outside the town uh, that was hit as well, and approximately four or 500 uh, meters of cable were taken down. So it, it seems to be concentrated in an area, as you said, North County Meath, County Louth and County Monaghan, where um, criminals, um, it would appear, uh, are, are traveling to rural areas um, of those counties uh, sometime during the hours of darkness uh, and are and would appear to be in gangs, Michael, because they're taking down maybe, as I say, up to three to 400 um, meters of cable on a night uh, in a rural area, they're dragging it up a laneway or up into a quiet farmland, and then they're stripping the plastic uh, material that covers the, the copper wires from there, dumping it in a field somewhere or in a wood somewhere or in a bog, as was the case in, in Drum Contract, and then taking the copper with them. And I take it they're fairly skilled individuals. Uh, are they electricians, or would you need to have uh, that level of knowledge to do this type of thing? 
you would need a, a certain degree of knowledge uh, to be able to do this. Uh, but apparently, from speaking to a few people that work in this area, I understand copper, as you would know yourself, is very expensive at the moment and is rising in price like many commodities, unfortunately, on a daily basis. But it's estimated that a tonne of this copper that they're after could be worth anywhere to six to seven thousand pounds sterling. So if you go out for a night, that could, uh, if you took down two or three hundred meters of cable, well, you would have that amount of money, six or seven thousand sterling, for a couple of hours work. So unfortunately, mm. it pays well, and the scene, these criminals then seem to have an outlet somewhere, Michael, that that be a scrapyard or that it be exported. The authorities don't seem to know at the moment. but And I suppose copper has always paid well. And I take it this is more lucrative than breaking into somebody's house and flooding the house uh, by breaking into their hot press and taking out the gas cylinder. It, it would Absolutely. It would appear to be much handier. And uh, But as you said, and rightly so, it's not one or two individuals doing that. It seems to be a team of individuals that uh, are doing this because it's labour intensified in that there's a lot of work involved in getting the wire down and then stripping the plastic from the wire and then removing it uh, off-site. So it seems to be a fairly well-organised mm. um, as far as we can can see from what's going on here. And it seems to be constant in that pocket of, as I say, North Meath, parts of Louth and parts of Monaghan. And it is lucrative and it seems to be paying. And unfortunately, it's on the increase. And I suppose the, 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 the victims in this, apart from air themselves... Mm of course, would be many householders um, who depend on the phone line for their broadband. Many people are working from home. They can't operate while their phone line isn't there, naturally. Uh, and then we also have young kids doing exams, leaving cert, junior cert or whatever, or college students that could be at home doing their work. And unfortunately, people that would depend on the airline then for the panic attacks, many elderly and vulnerable people would have a panic button on them and unfortunately many would yeah. depend on the airline for that and they're left without that at this time too. So No phone line, no panic uh, button, uh, no uh, broadband, no. no internet and so on. Uh, but I, I imagine that you would have to do this if you were going to do this sort of thing in a very rural area because it's not the sort of thing that would go unnoticed in a built-up area. No, but I understand even in Drumcondrath the night before last it was on the King's Court Road out of Drumcondrath which it's not the busiest road in the country by any means, but at the same time, it's not uh, we boring in the middle of nowhere either. Um, and even uh, outside Monaghan Town last night, Castle Shane area, it is a still a busy enough road. Um, Michael's just off the end too there. And so is it, da- it dangerous? Could it be dangerous for somebody passing by? I was asking you if uh, they'd need to be electricians because I was wondering if uh, they run the risk of electrocuting themselves. Is there the chance of them electrocuting somebody else? Well, it's, it's possible. Uh, I'm no expert in that area, mm. but I'd imagine when you're handling wires like that, as you say, that there would be an element of danger attached to it. And I suppose if anybody would happen to come across, and it would be by pure chance that somebody during the hours of darkness would come across um, this activity, be, my advice to them would not to confront these people at all, but to contact the guardie who perhaps would... Um, intervene at that point. Okay, we'll leave there for the moment. Uh, it's a dreadful thing, but thank you indeed yeah, for telling us you. about it. Uh, that's uh, Fianna Fáil Senator for Cabin Monaghan, Robbie Gallagher, who is his party's spokesperson on justice in Shannon Aaron. 
Thanks to Nora who called us on uh, that new old new number uh, 0419832000. That's the number for comments these days 0419832000. Uh, Nora says uh, the brutal murder of Ashling Murphy is shocking beyond belief to see. A beautiful young life snubbed out in such a brutal way must be unbearable for her family, her friends and the local community to bear. What uh, was a popular public amenity used by everyone in the town will now become a place forever associated with uh, this tragic loss of life. Nora says her hope is that the community will rally round Ashling's family and shelter them as uh, they try to navigate their grief. Thanks uh, for that, Nora. As uh, Jerry Scully of uh, the Tullamore Tribune was telling us it is a very popular public amenity as you say Nora Uh, it's linked to a loss of life as things stand because it's called the Fiona Way Uh, it was named after Fiona Pender who's been missing from Tullamore, one of uh, the missing women in this country uh, since 1996, I think. Uh, But that's uh, what we were saying earlier on. It really is ironic uh, that this attack took place on Fiona Way uh, because Fiona Pender uh, is a a name uh, that uh, is on the lips of everyone in Tullamore. Just something that they live with uh, because this type of thing in that part of the world is so rare and for a murder of this sort such a random murder on such a young person, a child really, 22 years of age, starting out her life and her whole life ahead of her, a young woman, uh, for it to be snubbed out like that. It really is dreadful. And we've had a a lot of calls uh, uh, in line with what you had to say to us uh, this morning, Nora. And thank you, as I say, for your call to the programme on 0419832000. Liam says he wants to welcome the recruitment of an online safety commissioner. Cyberbullying is totally out of hand. Many parents don't have the first idea about what their children are looking at. When they're uh, on the internet, they don't know what they're doing. Fines or the threat of jail is the only way to make some of these online trolls see that they can't get away with what they're doing. As for the tech companies who facilitate the trolls, we need to hit them where it hurts in their pocket and then they won't be long taking action to shut them down. Thanks, uh, Liam, for that. I'm not sure at this stage, and it is only at this stage because the Minister is saying that there's quite a a bit of work to do in relation to all of this, but I'm not sure at this stage if there will be any sanction for individuals who are acting inappropriately online. In other words, if I said something about you, Liam, uh, and you go and complain to the company, the social media uh, uh, company uh, and they don't take it down you'll be able to go to the online commissioner and they can give out to whoever it is uh, because they didn't take it out they might even find them but I'm not sure that I'll be in any trouble because of what I said about you uh, that remains to be seen uh, it is uh, I suppose uh, a new area and one uh, that they're tackling sort of as they go let's uh, get back uh, to talking uh, a little bit more about uh, the coronavirus and uh, the epidemic and indeed uh, this variant Omicron uh, there's a lot of concern about what we're doing in the country there's a, a lot of relief about what we're doing in the country as well. People are very happy to think that they can get back to work or get their employees back to work or that they can keep their doors open because they have the staff to run their shop or to look after you in hospital or whatever it is because so many people have had the virus or have been at close contact. But this thing is spreading like wildfire and where it goes from here, where it goes now as we 
uh, look towards uh, the end of uh, the winter and going into spring and the next few weeks and months ahead, what will happen next? Uh, let's hear the view of the World Health Organization. We're learning every day more and more about Omicron itself, uh, how Omicron is introduced into a population, what the population level immunity is in that in that area, in that country, uh, the vaccination coverage, etc. And we're seeing um, Omicron um, uh, outcompete Delta in, in many populations where Omicron is becoming more uh, prominent compared to Delta. Um, to be able to predict what will happen in the spring depends on many different factors. And again, um, it is up to us how this pandemic unfolds. This virus is on its way to becoming endemic. There's no question about that. But we are very much right now in the middle of this pandemic at transmission levels that we see right now, at the intensity of spread that we see, at the level of impact that these cases are having on our essential medical services, on essential services, um, on hospitalization rates, which are increasing in a number of countries. And now certainly we see less uh, uh, rates of hospitalization, but the sheer volume of cases is really putting a heavy burden on our healthcare systems. So the impact that we are seeing is really quite substantial. Um, The big question is not necessarily how sharp and how quickly that peak will be in every country because we see a consistent vertical uh, trajectory where Omicron is. And if you remember with Delta, when that emerged, we had a similar trajectory, but we didn't have this level of of the top of that peak. This is is off the charts. Um, How we come down from that, how we turn that peak and the case numbers go down, I think will depend on a number of things as it relates to uh, vaccination coverage, as it relates to population level immunity from past infection, as it relates to the interventions that are in play. Um, so the virus, you know, is well on its way to becoming endemic, but we're not there yet. The other factor that we have to consider is that this virus has um, is still is still evolving. So what will the next variant look like? Um, and as you've heard us say many times, um, this will likely not be the last variant that you hear us speak about. Oh dear. That's uh, Dr. Maria van Kerkhoff of uh, the World Health Organization. Thanks to Sarah, who has been on the phone to us uh, this morning, again on 041 Sarah says her heart goes out to the family of Ashling, uh, who has uh, been tragically killed in Tullamore. Uh, She says uh, that it is unthinkable that something like this could happen. She did everything right. She was running in broad daylight in a public space and yet uh, it wasn't safe. Where is safe? The terrible crime is going to cast a, a huge shadow over the town of Tullamore for many months to come and she doubts any woman living there will feel safe venturing out alone for some time. Uh, But let's hope uh, that that's not the case uh, because uh, there is somebody under arrest. uh, But I I presume it gives us all pause for thought, uh, in particular women, but all of us uh, pause for thought about how safe it is, especially if uh, you're a young woman out on your own. Uh, But at four o'clock in the afternoon in a very uh, busy place, uh, you would think it would be safe. Yeah, it's dreadful altogether. Uh, Terry says it's the randomness of the attack that he can't get his head around. All of the reports are suggesting that the attacker 
and the poor victim didn't know each other. To think that poor Ashling was just out trying to clear her head after a day at school and now her family are having to plan her funeral. It's heartbreaking. Terry says she and her family will be in his prayers. Thank you, Terry. I imagine that echoes. I imagine both of those comments echo the thoughts of many people listening to us uh, this morning and around the country. Lucy in touch. Thanks too to Lucy who wants to echo what's being said. Uh, the shock that is felt by all of us about the brutal murder of Ashling Murphy. She was just out for a run after work and to think that evil can lurk in such an innocuous place is hugely disturbing. Lucy says that Ashling was killed in a place where thousands of people have spent many happy hours with loved ones and a place she herself obviously felt safe. The senselessness of it all is incomprehensible. Lucy says her heart goes out to her family, friends and her young pupils. It's going to be a very, very hard day for those young children, isn't it? First class students in primary school who will be told this morning that their teacher, their lovely teacher, uh, was murdered yesterday. Uh, it's going to be a hard family uh, day for Ashling's family. It's going to be a very hard day for the women who saw Ashling being murdered. They saw her attacked and they went to the Gardaí by all accounts and were able to give a description of the man uh, that they saw. The Gardaí felt uh, that they knew somebody who fitted the description that the women gave and they are now speaking to that man who's under arrest in relation to the murder of Ashling. Uh, it's going to be a hard day, I think, for a lot of people. Anne in touch with us to say that she's delighted uh, to hear that we're finally going to have an online safety commissioner. Government has been promising one for so many years at this stage. Anne says she was beginning to wonder what it ever happened. She says she worries greatly about what her grandchildren have access to online. And while their parents take all of the necessary precautions or at least they think they do, and says you can never be sure what the kids are up to uh, because they seem to be one step ahead, don't they? Having someone to regulate things and bring about prosecutions for wrongdoing is a really positive step. Thanks, Anne, uh, for sharing that with us. Uh, And I think... uh a lot of uh, the things that people see on the internet are, are being replicated don't want to link it necessarily to anything that uh, happened uh, over the last 24 hours uh, but a lot of the time people are acting out things that they see on their internet uh, and it can be a very dangerous place for that reason and uh, can actually ruin lives. Of course the other side of it all is that the internet is an amazing tool and most of the time that's uh, what it's used as as a very positive thing in, in our lives. It's when it goes wrong uh, like a lot of things uh, that it becomes uh, dangerous as is the case and has led to all sorts of problems and hopefully this is a first step in the right direction. The Minister herself says it is only a first step and more to be done. Uh, back uh, to Omicron and indeed the vaccines and how the vaccines are working and are they worth anything at all at this stage? Yesterday, WHO hosted a global webinar attended by clinicians from around the world on the clinical management of COVID-19 during pregnancy, childbirth, and the early postnatal period. Pregnant women are not a higher risk of contracting COVID-19, but if they're infected, they're at higher risk for severe disease. That's why it's vital that pregnant women in all countries have access to vaccines to protect their own lives and those of their babies. 
We also call for pregnant women to be included in clinical trials for new treatments and vaccines. Fortunately, mother-to-baby transmission in utero or during birth is very rare, and no active virus has been identified in breast milk. A very important message about vaccines for everyone, but in particular for pregnant women from uh, the Director General of uh, the World Health Organization, Dr. Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus. Dr. Tedros was speaking in uh, Geneva at uh, the WHO headquarters yesterday and is appealing to all women uh, to get vaccinated uh, and particular if you are pregnant uh, for the sake of you and uh, for your child and uh, we may hear more from that press conference later in the day. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, if uh, you were listening uh, to the programme yesterday, you'll know uh, that we were talking about uh, climate change and uh, the climate budgets uh, that will have to be implemented now by law. The Committee on uh, the Environment and Climate Change will be advising uh, the government on uh, those budgets. And on Tuesday, it heard from the Climate Change Advisory Committee. Yesterday, it heard from uh, a number of academics. Uh, today, it's going to hear from social groups, business groups, trade unions, farmers and environmental groups and so there's very big questions to be asked because it's been set out in law. We have to reduce our targets uh, we have we have targets that has to reduce emissions rather by 50% by 2030 and let's uh, talk to a member of uh, that committee now Darren O'Rourke who's on uh, the line he's Sinn Féin's uh, spokesperson on uh, the environment and a very good morning to you and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning there's very big decisions uh, to be made uh, and there's no getting around it so who is going to have to bear the burden? I suppose that's one of the questions uh, that you looked at yesterday yeah, it was, Michael, and, and thanks for, for covering this issue. Um, I, I think, you know, the committee is involved in important work. I think everybody recognises the the challenge of uh, climate change. Um, uh, the, the Climate Change Advisory Council have set out the carbon budgets, which um, are essentially a cap on emissions, on, on emissions between now and 2035. Uh, so that means change across the board in every single sector uh, for 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 every individual um uh, and i think the real question is you know what what that change looks like um how do we protect because within it you know if if you're in the fossil fuel industry if you're you're in the business of of selling or making or maintaining um internal combustion engine petrol and diesel cars um if you're in peat harvesting if you're in um you know selling coal or briquettes or uh, um or oil or kerosene um the 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 ultimate aim is to wean people off fossil fuels so there's going to be transformational change the same in relation to to agriculture um, but, but on the it, flip side, but, but, Michael, but if the tar- is- but if the target is fifty one percent by twenty thirty to cut emissions by fifty one percent, is that going to be cutting emissions by fifty one percent in every sector of life, uh, or is it going to be that some will bear more of a burden than others? And uh, I think it's a, a point that was put to you yesterday by Professor John Sweeney, and he was saying uh, that if you don't 
reduce emissions in agriculture by 51%. What happens then? What if you reduce them by 30% or 10%, which is in all likelihood what will happen? Uh, then others are going to have to lift the weight that has been lost there. Yeah, absolutely. No, that's that's a fair point, uh, Michael. And what the what the Climate Change Advisory Council have done uh, are develop models um, as best they can. And look, in any of these models, there are there are weaknesses. But as best they could, they developed models across the energy sector, across agriculture, across land use, um, and tried to project um, what the best approach might be. Um, and within that, there was a number of scenarios, five scenarios, you know, heavy on energy, less heavy on agriculture, at uh, 51% on each, uh, 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 and the other way around. Uh, and, you know, a number of scenarios that they set out, and they have proposed a set of ranges. So uh, transport, for example, would be expected to reduce emissions in the in the range of 45 to 55%, the same for housing. So through retrofitting houses, industry would have to do a little bit less and agriculture would have to do a bit less. So that, that's their assessment of the the, the starting point, the nature of the the Irish yeah. uh, uh, e- economy. And but the, but the what does that mean? Say, what, what does that mean in reality? Doesn't that mean that household bills are going to go through the roof, as will petrol and diesel? So, so there is a plan to increase the price of petrol and diesel in the form of the carbon tax. Um, uh, the, 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 there, there is, you know, another plan, if you like, on the other side to increase. Uh, or to reduce our reliance on on uh, um, petrol and diesel through investment in public transport, through investment in, in active travel, um, through investment in retrofitting, um, and you know a significant opportunity for Ireland, for example, is to to electrify our transportation fleet, to electrify our home heating systems through renewable energy. So it's. So, so the scale of change, Michael, is just absolutely incredible. Uh, it's you know, it's transformational change that's that's hard to get your 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 head around the the type and scale of change. And on 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 Tuesday, we heard from the Climate Change Advisory Council said that this is the the best approach that they could come up with. Yesterday, we heard from eminent professors who said it doesn't go far enough. We need to go uh, faster, harder, higher, uh, and sooner. Um, but but we know that it you know it is it is an incredibly difficult challenge from from a Sinn Féin perspective. We said the state needs to lead in relation to this. Mm. We can't heap the burden of cost on um, on individual families. If you go through it line by line, uh, you know if your listeners are asking themselves, mm. can they afford a new electric vehicle? Uh, do they have public transport mm. options? Can they afford to retrofit their houses? I think very many of them will say, no, I, I can't do that today. Yeah. And, I, and, and the subsidies it, that have been provided. And if I, I could, should they be asking themselves, would I have blood on my hands? Uh, Margaret uh, was in touch with us yesterday and she says, all this talk about going green and buying electrical vehicles, but not a word about the unfortunate young children being used in mines in the Congo to dig with their bare hands for the lithium to make batteries. How could anyone with a conscience drive an EV just to have it to say, I've gone green, while young children suffer and die? These children should be at school, not slaving away to make the West look good. What do you make of that? Well, and look, there, there are ethical considerations, and I don't have the full detail in relation to it. There are certainly questions in relation to electric vehicles and the sustainability of the, the, the batteries that go into them. 
the real argument. Well, I'm just reading the from the just reading the Washington Post here, which uh, says uh, that uh, they use about a hundred thousand cobalt miners in Congo who use hand t- tools to dig hundreds of feet underground with l- little oversight and few safety measures, according to workers, government officials, and evidence found by the Washington Post during visits to remote mines. Deaths and injuries are common, and the mining activity exposes local communities to levels of toxic metals that appear to be linked to ailments that include breathing problems and birth defects, health officials say. That doesn't sound like saving the planet. Well, I'll make this point, Michael. Um, If we are reliant on the market to solve the issues of climate change, and that seems to me what is being proposed by governments across the world, then we are going to fail. And that the, the electric vehicle police is a is a is a, a case in point in relation to that. The the, the real um, climate benefit in terms of transportation is not in relation to a switch towards electric vehicles. It's actually in relation to a switch towards public transport. So to get people out of the private car. Now there are particular challenges in Ireland in relation to that, and some yeah. people listening will probably think it's pie in the sky. And we think of our, you know, the spatial distribution and the, yeah. the population density. But we, we need to invest in public transport. We need to reduce the, the type of mileage that that people are doing. Yeah. That, that is going to take a very significant change. But there are the yeah. other thing I would say in relation. Well, to I, could, I, 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 I couldn't buy a fancy electric car. I wouldn't afford one. But apart from that, I couldn't buy one if I thought I had uh, children's blood on my hands. And that seems to be the case. No, and, and 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 there's another point. Electric vehicles are heavier uh, than 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 uh, in terms of combustion engine vehicles. So there's an implication in relation to that. But but, it, but the flip side of that, Michael, I would say is the communities that are at the coal face in relation to climate change. Those you know when we listen to COP26, the countries that were standing up and saying. Um, we are seeing this change. We are impacted. We see the desert spreading. We see increased, um, you know, serious uh, uh, flood events or, or extreme weather events. Those are the same communities in the poor countries of the world. We, we, there was a, an eminent professor, Kevin Anderson, attended yesterday, and he was from Britain. He said Britain has a history of colonialism. We went and we took their their people, we took their resources, and now we're taking their carbon budgets. We're we're we're, we're taking their uh, their. Uh, um, you know, uh, natural resources, the resources in terms of, of the climate. So there is a, a piece in terms of equity. There is a piece in terms of fairness. And what we need to do, and it is going to be difficult, uh, uh, but there is opportunity in relation to it. There's opportunity in terms of, of warmth, in terms of uh, better public transport, in terms of uh, uh, good jobs, energies but we need the state to lead in relation to michael if we're going to heap mm. the burden onto ordinary families i just don't be- believe people are in a position to do it we won't get the support of people and it won't happen yeah and i, I think margaret and i will uh, need uh, to consider how margaret got in touch with us did she use a, a mobile phone and was that powered by a battery or did she send a text from her laptop that was sent uh, using a, a battery uh, that uh, was powered by 
lithium uh, from one of these mines for that matter but I suppose that's the type of uh, questions that we have to weigh up in all of these debates. We need to leave it there for the moment Darren though your hearings uh, will continue today I'm sure we'll be hearing more from the committee later in the day and thank you indeed as always for joining us. That's uh, Darren O'Rourke, Sinn Féin's spokesperson on climate change. Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, if you were listening to us uh, yesterday, you'd have heard mention of uh, the bank holiday uh, that uh, we're going to have, I think, on an annual basis uh, for St. Bridget's Day. Uh, This year, though, it's going to be linked, it seems almost certain, with St. Patrick's Day, which means that it'll be held on the 18th of March. So you'll have St. Patrick's Day on Thursday, the 17th of March, St. Bridget's Day annual day off on the 18th of March uh, and then the weekend so it'll be a, an extra long bank holiday weekend but that from 2023 the year after or, or next year I suppose at this stage uh, you'll be talking about uh, a bank holiday on the 1st of February every year to coincide with St Bridget's Day. We're going to be talking about that uh, with ISME the Irish Small and Medium Enterprises organisation in the next few moments uh, but as I I was saying to Damien English, uh, the Minister for Business yesterday, uh, is that enough? Should we be going further? Because it seems as though we are way behind our European counterparts, uh, two, three, four days behind in some circumstances. Uh, And okay, we get one day uh, starting next year from the 1st of February to celebrate St. Bridget's Day as a bank holiday. But if we were to have another few days holiday, when should they be? Uh, It would seem as though there's obvious gaps in the summer months uh, when all of us like to be off, uh, that we have the May weekend, the June weekend, and then nothing, maybe something in July would be good. I don't know if you have any feelings on this. We do, of course, have the August weekend and we have a bank holiday for October at Halloween. Uh, So maybe it would make the argument to have some sort of a holiday in September as another bank holiday. But as things stand, it'll be a double holiday in March of this year, the 17th and 18th. And then as we go into next year, it'll be the 1st of February in 2023 for St. Bridget's Day. Now, uh, I think uh, we've uh, Neil MacDonald. Uh, no, we don't have, I beg your pardon, we don't have Neil MacDonald of me on the line. Uh, we'll try and come back to that a, a little bit later on. Uh, with Neil MacDonald of ISME. Uh, Karen Coleman of Europarl Radio, uh, the editor of Europarl Radio, is on the line, though, uh, and uh, it's a big day uh, for anybody watching European politics today. I'm not sure if you want a, a bank holiday at any other time other than St. Bridget's Day, Karen. <laughs> well, <laughs> I think I'm not sure that that's going to play uh, very largely in the talks uh, today, no, the sure Brexit not. talks yep. that will take place in. Kent uh, at this uh, very nice uh, British um, country house in Kent, Chevening yeah. House between Liz Truss, the UK Foreign Secretary, and Maris Shevkovich, the EU Commissioner, Vice President, but who's the EU's uh, major negotiator on Brexit issues. Of course, as you know, and we've talked about many times, there are still um, disagreements over the Northern Ireland Protocol, 
So this is another attempt now to try and restart those negotiations. And of course, Mm -hmm. Liz Truss took over from Lord David Frost, who was the UK's um, major or chief Brexit negotiator. So this this will will be her first first meeting. Yeah, this will be her first meeting with uh, the Commission's Vice President, Mara Sofkovic. And there was great hope uh, that she would bring a new lease of life to these talks and uh, perhaps a a different stance. But it, it seems as though it's the same old British approach to this and once again Ms Truss is uh, threatening to trigger Article 16. Yes and this uh, I, I, no doubt has disappointed many in in, in Brussels uh, circles who've been um, involved in these negotiations but perhaps also not surprising Michael because this has generally been the British theme in terms of the negotiations first on Brexit and then, you know, on the Northern Ireland Protocol. Um, they publish these articles a lot of the time in the Telegraph and in Liz Truss's case in the Sunday Telegraph last weekend, where they voice their issues and their, let's say, belligerent views on um, their stance. In this case, again, Liz Truss, as you said, she reiterated previous threats by uh, the British team that they would trigger Article 16 of the Northern Ireland Protocol and again set out the UK's stance on the issues that they are concerned about um, prior to these meetings. So this is not surprising that um, these issues would be aired through the British press. I suppose there was some optimism that Liz Truss might take a more conciliatory approach when she took over from David Frost last year because, of course, he was seen to have been a, a, a very sticky character in terms of, you know, stamping his, his feet and insisting on certain issues. But that doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, when they when they have their very fine dinner in Chevening House this evening, that there won't be a softening of the position. Um, and I suppose, especially now when you see what's been happening in British politics and the fact that Liz Truss could potentially maybe become a, a British Prime Minister if Boris mm. Johnson is forced to resign. So there's a lot of that stuff going on as well in the background and to what extent will she be keeping an eye on the hardcore Brexiteers on the one hand and maybe relying on support should uh, she run for the uh, the British uh, PM position. And on the other hand, trying to get a final agreement during her term in negotiating with the EU. And she would have been a great source of solace yesterday to Boris Johnson when he was in the dock. She sat beside him and uh, seemed to be giving great encouragement and endorsement to him uh, when he was telling Keir Starmer to wait uh, for the outcome of an inquiry into that boozy party that has uh, caused him so much trouble. There will be a bit of whining and dining this evening uh, and there will be a real British slant on it, uh, Scottish smoked salmon, Welsh lamb and Kent apple pie are are, are all on the menu, apparently. Uh, Undoubtedly, that's uh, to play up uh, the quality of British goods and produce. Uh, But how serious is this meeting? Uh, Could the whole thing fall apart this evening? Well, I doubt that the whole thing will fall apart this evening. Actually, I did an interview with Ireland's EU Commissioner Mairead McGuinness on this, and um, you you might actually hear hear it over uh, the course of the day, just saying that very much this is about the two getting to know one another and two sides. Well, I suppose a lot of the same people um, in the cabinet of the Commissioner and uh, Truss's and the UK side will probably be the same people, the negotiating teams behind the scenes. But it's very much, um, I suppose, an opportunity for Shevkovich and Truss to get to know one another. And absolutely, I, you know, it's probably um, 
no surprise that the British are choosing a very fine British house. I gather it's something like 3,000 acres in this magnificent place in Kent um, to be able to show British grace. And as you say, of course, all the um, fine produce from across the UK to show how, you know, how good they are producing their own goods. But I would imagine that, you know, like I don't imagine that this evening they're going to take a very strong stance. It will be about both sides uh, saying hello to one another. It's the first time apparently they will have met in person, although I gather um, they may have had words uh, previously uh, mm. on, on the line before this. So I wouldn't think that, I think today is the start of a new round of talks between the two sides. And it's very interesting now, the backdrop that we have going on behind the scenes in terms of the turmoil within the British cabinet and the instability of Boris Johnson's position now, because as you rightly say, Liz Truss has been a strong supporter of Boris Johnson. Um, But that's not to say uh, that the tables won't turn if indeed it turns out that he's not going to get ongoing support. And how that plays into the disagreements over the Northern Ireland Protocol will be very interesting to see over the next few weeks now and whether there is going to be a softening of the stance of the British um, because the e- from the EU's point of view, they continue to say they've, you know, they've given a lot. They rolled back a lot on the supply of medicines. This mm. was an announcement that was made by Shevkovich last December that they're trying to their best to be able to deal with the concerns that the British have. Um, meanwhile, the British are saying, well, you know, there are still uh, requirements for what yeah. they regard as unnecessary red tape and telling Brussels what things they want to do. And of course, these are the very reasons they left the EU in the first place. So there's still strong disagreements on these issues. And uh, Liz Truss is very popular with Jeffrey Donaldson and other unionist politicians. It seems uh, her article in the Sunday Telegraph went down very well in uh, the North uh, and indeed uh, Jeffrey Donaldson met with her on uh, Monday or Tuesday and seemed to be very happy with that and will be saying uh, that despite what uh, the European Commission is saying about saying that they've gone as far as is possible and have bent over backwards to accommodate everything that it's not good enough and that they want uh, to see Europe going further. That sounds impossible if Europe is saying it can't do anymore but I suppose politics is the art of the possible. It is the art of the possible. And I mean, if you look at what the EU originally proposed and then the changes that they made, particularly towards the end of last year, then, you know, we have seen that they have compromised on certain issues. Now, what they absolutely say is a red line and they won't compromise on is the role of the European Court of Justice. Um, And of course, this has been a continuous thorn in the side of the British. They do not want um, the European Court of Justice oversight in terms of issues to do with the implementation of the protocol. And it looked like there was a softening of the stance on the European Court of Justice late last year. But Truss has raised it again as an issue um, and, and, uh, you know, and doesn't seem to want it again. So I think that, again, these are issues that appeared to maybe the British were preparing to to soften the stance. And yet again, now it seems with Truss, she's not prepared to do that. But again, Michael, this is a negotiating tactic. We've seen this before. We've seen also the fact that UK ministers will you know, will appear to appease the likes of the DUP and others in Northern Ireland who are very concerned about these issues to do with the protocol, and yet they can change their minds on these 
mm. issues as well. It is all about the art of negotiation right now, trying to, you know, really deal with the concerns that people in Northern Ireland have about the red tape issues and all the trade between uh, Britain and and Northern Ireland. And at the same time, also, I would say there is a strong imperative to to get this resolved once and for all um, and to try and just get on with it, secure the issues that they've been um, disagreeing with and then move on. And I think, you know, it's going to be very interesting how Trust negotiates this, especially again, as, as I said, against the backdrop of what's going on in British politics. Do they need to get the loyalist political parties on board? Uh, because there is this threat of collapsing the institutions, collapsing power sharing. Of course. I mean, and that's an ongoing issue with Northern Ireland and people in Northern Ireland and businesses will say they have very legitimate reasons to be concerned about all of, you know, the trade issues and the difficulties in terms of, you know, especially um, going forward, the kind of things that they're going to have to do to get goods in and out of Northern Ireland, between Northern Ireland um, and and Britain. So, and, and of course, you know, none of us want a situation where you have a community of people in Northern Ireland who are extremely um, angry or upset if ultimately an agreement is made and things are signed off on these issues that are outstanding on the Northern Ireland Protocol and that they don't agree with. So this is Mm. the difficulty about the issues over Northern Ireland. They were always going to be problems. Uh, And and that is the problem, isn't it? Which group do you upset? Well, and, you know, the reality is you probably, there's never a situation Mm. where you're going to be able to please everybody. I mean, and this is where, you know, very smart negotiating skills and diplomacy and and trying to reach a middle ground where probably nobody will be fully satisfied, but you'll, you'll be able to come up with something that will get things moving. But of course... You know, uh, uh, and Liz Truss has, again, I think, reiterated the fact that the Northern Ireland peace agreement is extremely important. And they they do say these kinds of things, um, the uh, British ministers and indeed Boris Johnson. So one would hope that those sentiments are very much articulated as well and are kept in mind when they're doing these negotiations behind closed doors. Okay, we leave there for the moment. Uh, Speaking of uh, European uh, affairs, though, uh, I don't know if you know anything about uh, bank holidays uh, in Italy, uh, Karen, but uh, Paddy Duffy, who's a very well-informed listener, has been texting saying that at the height of the Roman Empire, it had 177 public holidays a year. So we've a a long way to go. And uh, I thought you'd have been interested in one in July or September. But... (laughs) I'd, I'd always be interested in bank holidays, Michael. Right, I certainly wouldn't be turning them down. An opportunity to take a day off. No, well, <laughs> absolutely we'll, not. Well, we'll have Bridget's day to begin with. And thank you indeed uh, for joining us as always uh, this morning, Karen. Much appreciated. Karen Coleman is uh, the editor of Europarl Radio, which reports on the European Parliament for Irish radio stations. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. Uh, thanks to Tony in County Louth, uh, another regular texter to the programme. Always great to get your texts, Tony, too. And t- Tony says, I'd like to make three comments. Uh, the first one regarding uh, the hospital piece. Uh, the biggest complaint, Tony says, that he hears uh, from people who have been in uh, 
in hospital is the standard of food just when you most need to keep your strength up. Thanks uh, for that, Tony. I have heard complaints like that as well. I did spend some time in hospital. Thankfully, it's uh, years ago at this stage. But I have to say, I thought the food in Our Lady of Lourdes Hospital was fantastic. And I really do mean that. It really was lovely. I was very, very happy with it. Uh, So I'm not sure it's always the case and wouldn't be fair to tar everyone with the same brush. Uh, Secondly, he says, can you clarify what the position is on COVID-19 deaths here? As RTE television news seem to use one format for here and a different format for Northern Ireland, always quoting the number of deaths there and making it seem like there are none here. Is this true? No, it's not true, Tony. And I don't think uh, it's uh, a fair reflection on RTE to say that they're not reporting the deaths. They're reporting the information that is given to them uh, and when it is given to them. For example, yesterday, RTE, uh, like everybody else, reported that there were 49 deaths over the course of uh, the last week. That wouldn't have uh, been known to any journalist uh, on uh, Tuesday or Monday, for that matter. Uh, but uh, it's the information that comes to them from NEFIT, from um, the HSE and so on. And it is a lot of deaths. Uh, I must say I was very taken aback uh, with uh, the number of deaths over the last week. 49 deaths, that's 12 on average every single day. 12 people dying in this country to COVID-19. Uh, so it is an important piece of information. Those in authority decided to change the format. That's not anything to do with RTE not a decision they've made or anything like that that's uh, coming from uh, the health services anyway back to Tony's comment he says uh, the last comment he wants to make is on triggering article 16 he says it shouldn't be forgotten that it was the president of the European Commission Ursula von der Leyen who was the first to do this in error and suffered no consequences for it unlike a much more minor indiscretion by Phil Hogan which resulted in his sacking please explain that says Tony in County Louth. Thank you indeed, uh, Tony, for that. Uh, I think uh, Ursula von der Leyen uh, apologised for that. If I remember correctly, that had something to do with vaccines, didn't it? Uh, and uh, there was big apologies it was a big mistake and it shouldn't have happened and people didn't realise what was happening. Uh, Jerry in Wilkinson in touch with us as well and he says are we going to stop using mobile phones or driving uh, electric cars or lorries just because of different work practices in other parts of the world? Thanks for that uh, Jerry uh, and that goes back uh, to Margaret's comment which came into us yesterday uh, about uh, the mines in the Congo and how children are losing their lives and uh, indeed many people are are losing their lives it seems in those mines uh, where they mine lithium which is used in the batteries uh, that power the electric cars the mobile phones the laptops and so on Uh, it certainly was a surprise and a shock to me uh, Jerry. and uh, thanks to Margaret uh, for bringing that to her attention but it really is a dreadful situation by all accounts it's not just um, the danger of working in the mines it it seems but it it also seems as though the environment in the Congo around these mines is contaminated and is uh, quite possibly leading to all sorts of problems and diseases for that matter. Uh, Somebody else in touch with us uh, about going north for cheap alcohol uh, this uh, has to do with the cost of fuel why are people giving out uh, about the cost of expensive 
alcohol, if they're going for cheap alcohol, they don't seem to be worried about the expensive fuel that they were worried about a couple of weeks ago, says our caller. Thanks indeed uh, for that. Thanks too to Jim in County Loud, who's uh, been in touch with us uh, about uh, the coverage of COVID. And he says, my level of scaremongering is awful. Uh, He says, not even uh, the experts can predict the future and what will happen. It's a wait and see like we've been doing for two years uh, then. There's you, doom and gloom, instead of being the mild level-headed person we all need to hear right now. Thanks, Jim. I thought we heard from a few experts today saying pretty much what you've said. No argument with you there, Jim, but thank you indeed for texting us. Thanks to everybody who's been in touch. That's our programme for today. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am, right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.